Hi, everyone. This is Alan Bolio from ITR Economics, and I'm here to answer some of your questions. Thank you for the questions, by the way. We certainly do appreciate them. And there are some thought-provoking ones. And uh, as, as I'm sure you knew as you were asking them, it's uh, glad I got them beforehand, so I had a chance to, to think about them. Uh, the first one is, what are the most significant changes you've learned from the pandemic? Uh, what are the broad strokes? Uh, that one really made me pause and think, you know, we've been moving at lightning speed through this, trying to adapt to everything that came up. And trying to make sure that uh, you know we stayed on top of everything that I hadn't taken that thirty thousand foot view yet, and so I thank you for that question. I think the the significant change, the broadest strokes, is that uh, how quickly government could step in and decide that businesses were essential or non-essential and change the entire economic landscape. Uh, I had not anticipated that it could happen that quickly. Uh, this was a result of a natural disaster pandemic, but it was amazing to me how fast government could shut off the switch and just say, all right, go dark and everybody stay home. And uh, that was eye opening to me. And the other thing that it's not so much of a surprise, but it reinforces a prior view and thus I'll put it on the heading of broad stroke is that uh, we have really gone from feeling like fiscal responsibility to fully adopting that modern monetary theory we talked about, not officially, but in, in, in not just one party, uh, through time, both parties can run up the deficit like there's no tomorrow. They just do it for different reasons. Uh, but now we've, we've put it on steroids and we still think it's okay. And uh, not everybody, obviously, but people like the idea. People who vote like the idea. And people who vote think it's really good that government just can take care of everything. And uh, that's a broad stroke that I'm not particularly fond of because I'm an Austrian-leaning economist, because I think work is a good thing, because I think it is important that businesses be able to do well because of everything that business brings to the world. Uh, and I think that's one of the broad strokes that was a bit of a, set me back in my heels a bit, was like how quickly uh, that can change. All right, next one was, uh, what, do I, what do I think the impact might be of a $15 minimum wage? Well, as a theoretical economist, is if it's done gradually through time, say between now and 2025, we go up to $15 an hour, uh, there is some time to adjust. But theoretically, it will cost people some jobs and it will help others. You probably have heard the Congressional Budget Office study is out saying that uh, they think 900,000 people will be lifted out of poverty and something like 1.3 million jobs will be lost. I haven't checked their numbers, obviously, and I haven't run the calculus myself, but it, it's not an unreasonable uh, claim only because there are some businesses that just won't be able to cut in other areas. And as they are labor intensive, uh, they may be forced to sell or to just close because at $15 an hour minimum wage, they can't raise prices enough. They can't raise them fast enough. And the margins are too thin for them to be able to just go ahead and, and swallow it. So there'll be some collateral damage to be sure. And others will be quite happy. Uh, I must say that as a theoretical economist, uh, you would expect sometime down the road to see some inflationary pressure the last time I look into the last few times we've had minimum wage increases, of course, nothing like what we're going through now, not, nothing that's going to go from seven and a quarter to 15. But the last time there were 
noticeable increases in minimum wages. Uh, there was no noticeable inflationary pressure. We'll see what happens this time. Uh, you know, Seattle went through this. They're still there, and they're an expensive place to live. The cost of living there is high, and that may have an impact on their ability to grow down the road. That trial, that uh, experiment is still underway. New York, at the end of 2019, was supposed to see everybody go to $15 an hour, except for restaurants and fast food or people accepting tips. Um, and we didn't get a chance to see how that was going to pan out because of COVID. So we are lacking in documentation and experimentation to see how this uh, will all play out. Theoretically, some inflationary pressures, some job loss, some people made happy for a while. Nothing lasts forever. I don't know if you know this. Uh, not everybody does. Uh, but unions are strongly in favor of this overall, probably not unilaterally, because union wages are tied to the minimum wage. So if minimum wage goes from seven and a quarter to 15, it could mean significant increase in union wages uh, and uh, union dues to be paid to the unions, which is a uh, secondary benefit or maybe the primary benefit. But either way, it does impact millions of people because the amount of people on minimum wages Round numbers, don't quote me, but right around 450,000 uh, people. But the people in unions uh, are in the millions, um, 7.2 in the service industries and uh, another 7 million in other sectors. So it's, it's not a little bit of uh, the population that's impacted. All right, even as technology has advanced, we have seen labor productivity growth lower over the last 10 years. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Whoever made that statement, I agree with you. Do I think the pandemic has forced adoption of technology that will lead to labor productivity growth moving forward? Forced it uh, is not the word I would use, but I think I know where you're going with this. Uh, made it ever so apparent that it's needed, yes. Provided the opportunity to do it, absolutely. Provided the reason to do it, yes. Without people think you're a terrible employer for uh, doing that to people and of course not doing a thing you're making for a better workplace more competitive company more opportunities more advancement but you know how sometimes it works if you're bringing labor saving devices you're viewed as being anti-labor the reality is it may have exposed the need for it and provide an opportunity for many people to do that should they do that absolutely without any doubt in my mind anybody who wants to grow in this coming decade uh, should be doing that you know one of the reasons we have uncovered here at ITR why that hasn't happened, despite the technolo technology advances you talked about, is because major corporations have been uh, using nice increases uh, in, in cash to buy back their stock instead of investing in labor enhancing labor efficiency, generally called capital intensity activities. So they've gone for the balance sheet, buying stock back, uh, which is legal and fine, but you sacrifice at that point capital intensity, which would have allowed for increased profitability. That's why we've seen corporate profits rather stagnate in the United States over the last uh, few years, more than just a few. It's because of that trend has been greater than the trend to reinvest in yourself for that capital intensity. Uh, next question is an uh, interesting one also from uh, my uh, friends in Canada. All, my, all Canadians are friends of mine, being of Canadian descent. Uh, second uh, generation in the U.S. Buy America or buy American? The wording can make a huge difference for those of us that are Canadian manufacturers. Uh, 
I, I hadn't thought about that before. I'm sure it can make a difference. I'm not sure, and it could be because of who I am, but I've not run across anybody who thinks, you know, buying Canadian is somehow un-American or against America. Uh, in Canada, NAFTA 2.0, USMCA here in the United States, provided for ease of, of goods to travel back and forth across the border, making it a tighter economic relationship. And I think uh, the, the Buy America thing is aimed more at Asia and probably specifically China uh, than it is certainly in uh, into North America or South America. And in, when we get into North America, certainly uh, Canada is a bon ami and uh, we, we we don't really regard Canada as, as being that different. Now, Canada is different in, in many ways, and yet in many ways we are the same and we walk through life hand in hand. So I don't think that's going to be a real problem for you. Um, and there's no chain block technology. So if you're selling Canadian, uh, if you're a Canadian manufacturer and you're selling goods that are partially sourced from China at the moment, nobody's going to know. It's just going to say that it's sourced from Canada and that. Uh, can protect you, if you will, from that backlash. How does total employment look? Number of full-time workers. Uh, total employment is not based upon the number of full-time workers in, in classical terms. It used to be 6% unemployment. Now, in recent times, it's thought of more as 4% unemployment, uh, as full-time employment, total employment, um, because it's a percent of the workforce and availability and who wants to and who doesn't, who can't. Uh, so there, that's the number you want to watch. Today, I think we're at 6.8% or thereabouts. It's not a number that I track every day. It's not that important a number. I'd much rather look at the trends in employment than unemployment. But the reality is uh, number of full-time workers will vary depending on the season. The unemployment rate is an easy way for you to judge whether we're at full employment, more than total employment, full employment. Uh, if you're modern thinking, 4% is your number. Uh, lack of a workforce is a major, major issue. Indeed, it is. Whoever brought that statement forward, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You can't automate everything. Another statement, I just want to comment that I agree with you, you can't. So you have to be extremely creative in hiring folks, training folks, and retaining folks. And that's a whole HR process. There are firms dedicated to that task of helping you do that, uh, recruiting, training, and keeping. A uh, quick uh, story, a good friend of mine has a uh, business in Wisconsin, and they reached out into the community to try to train people from scratch. It's people who needed a job, people who said they wanted a job. And what they found out was uh, they had too many expectations for these people. They had to start off much slower. They, they start off with people training on Monday, eight hours, then Tuesday, eight hours, Wednesday, eight hours, a regular 40-hour work week. And by Wednesday, people stopped showing up. And what they realized was they had to start with a much smaller, um, much smaller bites. Monday, it's a couple hours. Tuesday, a couple hours. Then slowly you increase it till you get people used to coming in, used to working and liking the people around them, not feeling like they're just a small cog and, and rather that they're part of something and all the rest of that. I mean, that's what I mean. It's a big deal. It's not an easy, simple solution. Um, I, I remember seeing somebody with a sign, know that help wanted sign in black background, red letters. They had that in the corner of their rather uh, old looking factory, uh, one story, you know, single story factory. And uh, the, the 
they were complaining how they couldn't hire anybody. And I thought, well, yeah, you're not going to either uh, with just a sign. That's all they were doing. They had a sign up. You're going to have to get real creative. There's a guy in Chicago that I uh, really took my hat off to because he's in, in the steel uh, distribution, which is not manufacturing, but it's still a workforce issue. You need workers. And what he decided to do was change his image in the community. So he invited in groups, whether they were uh, the scouts, whether they were church groups, whether they were anybody that needed a meeting space, uh, he'd have them come in because, and then he'd have swag to give them. So his name was going out into the community and the parents would come pick up the kids and the parents would welcome in. There'd be coffee or soda or juice or whatever. And his whole issue was to change the, the view people had of his facility. It was clean. It was bright. It was nice people, good place to work so that while these kids certainly were not his target audience, the parents were, and the parents would tell other people, and therefore the word would go out that this is a good place to work. What a major advantage that would be over other people in town who are close to the community. Just a couple of examples. Uh, sorry for going on about it, but it is a fascinating subject. There are factors that go beyond basic economics. You're absolutely right, whoever made that statement. One example would be the federal unemployment wage increase and extension. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. That's not basic economics at all. That's politics. Uh, and that is uh, politics of a modern sort, where uh, we have a, a desire to uh, help in uh, generous ways. We'll just leave it at that. And uh, that would not be fundamental economics, although it's somewhat Keynesian in its uh, application, certainly not Austrian leaning. The reality is uh, that did have an, a positive impact in many ways and that it provided lots of cash to individuals so that retail sales did not plummet, so that the economy did not tank. Uh, it was shut down, not broken down, and it provided ongoing liquidity, disposable personal income in a, in a way for us to move forward uh, more quickly. There is a price to be paid for that, but because uh, there's a price for every, there's a price tag on everything, but that's down the road. Uh, but you're right. Uh, there are factors that go beyond basic economics. And those are the tricky ones. I'll give you another one. That's when the oil uh, prices went to uh, negative numbers. I mean, theoretically, not ever going to happen. But who would have thought that combined Saudi Arabia and Russia would uh, just bury the world in oil, just flood the world with oil so that prices, uh, futures went negative so that they would pay you to take oil because they had no place to keep the stuff anymore. Um, so you're right. Factors can go beyond basic economics. Uh, I'll bet you dollars to donuts. The uh, trickiest ones would be the political ones. All right, last one. Where is the price point where people uh, stop buying steel? Does one exist? Well, uh, you answered your own question when you said probably not. And the answer is probably not. You're right. I don't know if you remember. The record high price for a producer price index for steel scrap was uh, reached in July 2008. And at the end of uh, December 2020, we were just 59% uh, of that uh, record high, 41% below the record high. So the, the reality is uh, we've proven in the past we're willing to pay a whole lot more than we are today. And, uh, you know, if demand is strong for the use of the steel, uh, we'll put surcharges on uh, to our clients so that we can uh, buy that steel and continue to sell product. Um, as it says in Jurassic Park, life finds a way, and the economy always finds a way too. I don't think you're going to find that there's a place where people stop buying steel. There's a place where people might look for substitutes. There's a place where they may uh, uh, 
cause such an inflation that uh, activity will, uh, inflation in general, not just in steel, but inflationary trends can bubble up and cause the economy to tank, which causes prices to come down. The economy does self-correct that way. All right. Uh, thank you for the questions, and uh, I hope uh, this has helped you. If you have anything else, uh, please send an email to itr at itreconomics.com. Uh, more than happy to um, see what's on your mind, and somebody will be sure to reach out to you. I can't guarantee it will be me, uh, but somebody will be sure to reach out to you. Thank you very much for your time, and I wish you a great day and a good year.